0: Hello, and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley, and I want to thank you for listening to my podcast. The Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, depending on who you talk to, is alive and is well. In a 7-2 vote, the United States Supreme Court turned aside the latest effort by Republicans to gut the defining legacy of former President Barack Obama. With this vote, which admittedly turned on a technicality, so-called Obamacare seems to finally, finally be here to stay. And when I say finally, I mean in the face of literally hundreds of efforts by Republicans to introduce legislation in Congress that would have gutted the program in one way or another. Obamacare always was like a four-legged chair, and the Republicans figured strategically that if they knocked out one of the legs of the chair the rest of the structure would collapse well it hasn't exactly worked out that way keep in mind that with the passage of time more and more people and by the way that passage of time is now more than a decade people have become used to the ACA's benefits in other words Obamacare has become popular now we should emphasize Republicans, I think, kind of, sort of, knew this. That's why they fought so hard against Obamacare, even in its earliest stages, even in its developmental stages, because they knew that this kind of coverage for literally tens of millions of Americans would wind up being popular. And the longer it lasted, the longer it existed, the more popular it would become and it would become part of America's DNA. And that is what they feared for a number of different reasons. Some of them because they certainly were funded in part and received campaign contributions in part from the insurance industry. Some people uh, jumped up and started screaming about socialized medicine uh, because what they wanted to try and do linguistically was to tie Obamacare to some sort of socialist plot, which, by the way, they continue to do on a lot of different levels. Now, none of the efforts have succeeded at this point, although it must be said that the efforts to try and gut Obamacare in some of the lower courts, not in the Congress, but in some of the lower courts, were not initially in Obamacare's favor. It took getting all the way to the Supreme Court, and now this is the third time that they've gone to the high court and lost. Third time. Turned out not to be a charm for Republicans who wanted to dismantle Obamacare. Now, why have none of these efforts succeeded? I kinda got my own idea about this. I think first, Republicans, including former President Donald Trump, failed miserably to come up with an alternative to the Affordable Care Act. We heard all kinds of rhetoric over the last decade, even before Donald Trump. Republicans in Congress, oh, we've got a plan. We've got a plan that's going to serve the American people better than Obamacare. Well, they never were able to articulate it. They seemed never to be able to put together a bill, a piece of legislation that could pass the Congress. And keep in mind that there was a point at which the presidency and both houses of Congress were in Republican hands and they still could not get it passed. Coverage of pre-existing conditions, coverage for adult children to the age of 26, these are still very popular components of the Affordable Care Act. And the other thing that people seem to forget, with the absence of any effort on the part of Republicans to come up with an alternative, the alternative was going back to a health care system that existed before the Affordable Care Act. And I'm sure many of you who were around then remember some of the horror stories, children who were denied coverage because they had some form of pre-existing conditions children facing death in some cases, because their insurers would not cover life-giving surgery, life-giving procedures. And to be honest, there are still flaws in Obamacare that have to do with the cost of care. Some people still simply cannot afford it. However, the ACA popularized these situations, these things, coverage of pre-existing conditions, coverage of children up to the age of 26, adult children, they made it popular. It became part of America's healthcare DNA. Now, none of this means that congressional Republicans are just going to stop trying. They're not going to take their ball and go home because the Supreme Court ruled against them. They continue to assail the ACA. And they continue to say, oh, we, we have an alternative. We have an alternative. Don't worry. They don't have an alternative any more than the previous GOP members of Congress had an alternative. Now, one thing they do know, and I, I mean, you hate to impugn the motives of people who have been elected by the people in their congressional districts to represent them. But they know The Republicans know, going in, that had the court ruled against Obamacare, 21 million Americans would have lost health insurance. Now, think about this for a minute. Who would be the big losers? Answer, the working poor would be the big losers. And not just those who are in Obamacare set-up systems. Some people with private insurance would have lost that insurance. Like so many other parts of American life, poor people who make little money working at jobs where their employers would rather not be bothered providing even basic health care, you know, those folks would have been out. If their kids got sick, if they got sick, we would be back to a system where people said, well, if if you're too sick to come into work on Friday, don't bother coming into work on Monday. You think I'm exaggerating? Talk to some working poor people about what their lives were like when they had to worry about the health of their children. At least the Affordable Care Act took some of the sting out of that. Now, I believe that this is a really good time after the Supreme Court ruling, to sort of press a progressive advantage with regard to the Affordable Care Act, I've always thought that the ACA was the first baby step toward universal health care for all Americans, which I don't know about you. I, I don't really care what people say about socialized medicine. I don't. I really don't. Because I've heard it for too long, and the argument. Is too flimsy, too stupid, too tired, too fetid to bother me. I want to see every single American afforded coverage, health coverage. I further believe that this ought to be a priority, all right, along with climate change, ending police brutality, ending voter suppression, and teaching the actual history of the United States. More on that a little bit later. All of these things will take work, all right, building on Obamacare. See, it's one thing to say, oh, okay, well, we have Obamacare and all is right with the world. I don't believe that. I think it's a step, and it should always be seen as a step and a stepping stone because you see that there are people who are more than willing to disenfranchise 21 million Americans from their health coverage, 21 million Americans. What are we as progressives prepared to do? It really is gonna be about beating those Republicans at their own game. And speaking of games, what exactly is Texas Governor Greg Abbott playing at to coin a phrase? He apparently plans to pick up where Donald Trump left off in trying to build a border wall. He's committed $250 million of Texas taxpayers' money to do this. Now, you can stop laughing. Well, almost stop laughing. He wants to pay the rest of the cost through donations. It is ridiculously expensive to build a border wall. This is not cheap stuff we're talking about here. $250 million is not going to build a lot of wall. And Abbott knows this. So what he's doing is the political equivalent of a GoFundMe, asking Texans who have already paid $250 million toward this wall to kick in more money to finish paying for this wall. Now, all of this, on Greg Abbott's part, is to burnish his credentials, his bona fides, with the right flank of Texas Republicans. He's running for reelection next year, and his opponent, you see, is also talking about building a border wall. This is above and beyond the usual political theater, even for a state like Texas. As is typical of Republicans these days, the Abbott Initiative was short on details. You see, there's a pattern here, folks well we're going to change health care we're going to make it great for all americans well what are the details well we'll get to that we're going to build a border wall and the mexicans are going to pay for it well how did that work out for you well not exactly we had to take the money from someplace else and now abbott says texas will build a border wall well how and what are the logistics Well, we haven't quite gotten to that part yet, but stay with us. We'll get back to you. That's how these people operate. They have no plan. None for any of this. So here's this border wall that Greg Abbott has pledged to construct. And it really is about trying to make him look more right-wing, than somebody who's planning on challenging him in the Texas Republican primary next year. Now, one of the things that he has not come forward with is how he's gonna mollify ranchers and other landowners on whose property his proposed wall would have to cross. A more thorny question is how the state would enforce immigration laws when that is the sole province of the federal government. So he's going to build a border wall to stop people from coming in but he doesn't have the enforcement authority to stop people from coming in (laughs) it's hilarious but i'm not sure a lot of people in texas are laughing to be honest it does not appear to be of particular concern at least to right-wing texas republicans that no one has been held fully accountable for last winter's electric grid collapse in the state of Texas. That collapse cost 150 lives, and Texans have yet to get a dime from the state to deal with an estimated $18 billion. $18 billion. That's with a B, folks. In surge power costs as a result of that grid collapse. Now, you can get into the politics as to why the grid collapsed, but that's not really the issue. Not as far as I'm concerned. As far as I'm concerned is, you're saying, on the one hand, you want Texans to kick out $250 million, and the state of Texas has yet to make good on $18 billion in power costs that were not the fault of Texans. Wasn't well, Texans' fault that the grid collapsed? Now, there is no question, and see, this is where people get kind of twisted about this thing. There's no question that migration across the southern border is a problem, and it's a growing problem. It will not be solved by sophism, walls, or bombast. It will be solved by comprehensive immigration reform, something that appears to elude politicians in this country, changes in U.S. policy toward the countries that migrants are leaving. And by the way, that's what Kamala Harris was going to Guatemala and Mexico to try to accomplish, to talk to those folks about the root cause of all this migration. What did she get for her trouble? Well, you didn't go to the border. Yeah, okay. See, this is the kind of nonsense that people try and promote as some kind of political gotcha or whatever. There needs to be advanced planning. And the Biden administration is going to have to take the weight for this eventually. Advanced planning to cope with migrant surges when they occur. Now, whatever planning they come up with, whatever reforms they come up with in terms of immigration law, They should all have humanitarian treatment as a top priority. And just in case Abbott thought he was out of the woods with the grid, consider for a moment that we're not even completely into summer yet. We're just crossing that threshold. And the heat in Texas is threatening to collapse the grid yet again. Texas is one of those hardest hit by global warming and a drought coming at the same time. Now, a cynic like me would conclude that ought to be Greg Abbott's major priority. Apparently not. Border wall, raising money for a border wall, seems to be of more importance than the health and well-being of the people in that state. Is he ready to help cities adapt to a new reality? One that centers around energy conservation and grid upgrading, upgrading, that is? Probably not. I could be wrong, but Greg Abbott has received $26 million in campaign contributions from the oil and gas industry. Now, maybe that's why last winter he was so quick to falsely blame wind turbines for the collapse of the grid. All this gets back to how this governor chooses to spend taxpayers' money. Is 250 million in spec money really worth the investment? At the end of the day, I'm not from Texas. It's not for me to decide. It is up to the people of Texas. Up next, 21 members of the House of Representatives voted against honoring Capitol and DC Metro police officers responded to the January 6th insurrection. As despicable as that is, one went even further. Find out the details shortly. This is The Intersection. Wherever you are, stay tuned to The Intersection with Mark Riley. What's happening in your world? Is there an issue you'd like me to talk about? hit me up with a comment on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. 21 low-life members of the House of Representatives voted against honoring Capitol and Metro DC police officers who put their lives on the line during the riot and insurrection at the U.S. Capitol building on January 6th. These complete and utter hypocrites had various and sundry reasons for voting against the resolution, most of them involving... Criticizing Democrats for putting the resolution forward in the first place. This is the level to which some Republicans, not all Republicans, but some Republicans will stoop to pay homage and express fealty to defeated, and I emphasize, defeated former President Donald Trump. Now, one of those voting no was Congressman Andrew Clyde of Georgia. He was the guy and i cannot emphasize this enough he was the guy who said the january 6th insurrection was not all that different than a tourist visit aside from that lunacy clyde made headlines recently when he refused to shake the hand of a dc metro police officer named michael fanone maybe a little backstory is in order here fanone and another officer had come to Capitol Hill to talk to the Republican holdouts on the gold medal resolution. Fanon encountered Clyde in an elevator, introduced himself, and stuck out his hand to shake Clyde's. According to Fanon, Clyde stared at him and would not shake his hand. Mind you, Fanon suffered a traumatic brain injury as well as a heart attack, defending members of Congress like Clyde from the so-called tourist visitors. As an aside, there is in fact footage of Clyde barricading a door that the same tourists were trying to breach. No matter, according to Fanon, the only thing Clyde said to him was, I don't know you. He says the minute the elevator door opened, Clyde ran out like a coward. And that's a quote from Michael Fanon. Got that right. Clyde came up with a weasel-like response as to why he acted this way. Simple fact is, there is no excuse. And one of the things that people are starting to come up with now, people on the right, people who don't want, for example, an investigation into exactly what did happen on January 6th. Uh, I've been seeing all these things on Facebook from people saying, well, who murdered Ashley Barrett? I think that was her name. The woman who was killed trying to storm the Capitol. They wrapped her up in the American flag and made it sound like she was a patriot and made it sound like somebody targeted her. They don't seem to have any proof that anybody targeted her. And certainly the loss of a human life is something to be mourned. But, you know, the quality of human life seems to vary greatly, depending on which side of the political aisle you might happen to be on. So here's all these different people coming up with all these, because Rolling Stone actually went and talked to each one of those 21 Republican holdouts. And some of them, you know, told a talking point party line about why they didn't support the resolution. And some of them actually went out on a limb, but nobody, (laughs) believe me, nobody went out on a limb quite as far as Andrew Clyde of Georgia. Now, the fact of the matter is, according to Fanon, again, Andrew Clyde said, I don't know you. Now, Andrew Clyde represents approximately 711,000 Georgians, in his congressional district. How many of them is he prepared to say the same thing to? I I don't know you. Now, I've asked before how people like Andrew Clyde, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, and others of their ilk managed to get elected to office in the first place. Sad to say, after racking my brain, I haven't got a clue. Again, each congressional district represents about 711,000 people. Just taking those three morons together, that's a total of about 2.1 million people. I would ask each and every one of them, or the ones that vote anyway, is this the best y'all can do? All of the 21 Congress people who voted against the gold medal resolution are up for re-election, guess when? Next year. Are we really... To believe that their constituents can't do any better than them. Now, I may have been critical of brutal policing in the past, and I stand by those criticisms. I also say that's not all cops, okay? I know cops who have put their lives on the line. I know cops who have worked undercover in really, really dangerous situations to keep people safe so with all the criticism of police brutality it's not a zero-sum game all right i believe that you have to encourage the good cops to root out the bad cops but one thing i know for sure michael fanon who suffered a traumatic brain injury in defending members of congress against an insurrection he's a hero Those members of Congress who refuse to honor him? Not nearly, not nearly so much. Coming up, Juneteenth. Something to celebrate? Some people don't think so. Stay with us, this is The Intersection. Hey, what up y'all, it's your boy Fab Five Freddy and I'm live and direct home in Harlem, Tune in to my main man, dropping all his great information. Mark Riley, The Intersection is live, y'all. Tune in. Welcome back to The Intersection. Thank you so much for staying with us. You know, I've always been ever so slightly standoffish about Juneteenth. As a kid, I always thought Juneteenth was more or less a Southern tradition given that no one in my northern family that I knew of celebrated it. I knew that it was about celebrating when the last group of slaves in America, in Texas, found out they were free. That was the narrative that people taught me. This was, by the way, two months after the end of the Civil War. Certainly, it's nice to know that President Biden has signed a bill into law that makes Juneteenth a federal holiday. Yet something... Something in my head says, why are we celebrating the fact that slaves in one state were freed well after the Emancipation Proclamation? Even more important is the Juneteenth narrative an accurate reflection of the real history. This comes into serious focus as the debate over so-called critical race theory rages on. Is this Juneteenth narrative that we have all been taught, at least most black people have been taught, because I don't know about the rest of the population, but certainly that, that's the narrative that black people were taught, is that, in fact, the real history. Robin Washington, writing in the forward, presents a provocative view and a changed narrative. He says, slaves in Texas, at least most of them, knew they were free. They were kept in slavery not by ignorance, but by the slaveholder's gun and the slaveholder's whip. When Union General Gordon Granger rode into Galveston and read the proclamation, he had to enforce it at the point of bayonets. Further, Washington cites historical research by historian Gregory Downs that indicates some Texas slaveholders still kept their slaves as property even after Granger brought the news of emancipation. It doesn't end there, this somewhat different narrative. Down's research says that before General Robert E. Lee's surrender, slaveholders from several southern states actually moved their slaves to Texas. Why, you might ask? Because they wanted to preserve this vile example of free labor for as long as they could. This is particularly important as states like Texas, their legacy of hate against black America, suppressing the black vote by every means at their disposal, while at the same time banning critical race theory that is in their schools, press on. Not that they actually know what critical race theory is, and I can do a segment on that in an upcoming episode, because the ignorance surrounding critical race theory, is yet another example of white supremacy. And, you know, if, if you start telling this history in Texas and about the real history, the possible real history, you can debate it, but the possible real history of Juneteenth, and then you combine that with a changed narrative about what happened at the Alamo, you forgot about the Alamo you? Because that's another story. And it's another story that might not stand close scrutiny, just like Juneteenth. All of this stuff folds into itself. Border walls, climate change denial, the whole nine yards. Now, cheers to all those people who celebrated Juneteenth, the federal holiday. I'd love to be able to celebrate the end of Climate Change Denial Day, the end of Hate Day, the end of Voter Suppression Day. All of them I would love to celebrate at once. Somehow, sad to say, as Juneteenth becomes a federal holiday, these other things are perhaps a ways from happening. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well.